Man, cool, man. Hey, thank you guys for coming out tonight. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's all right, man. Cheers, cheers. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, it is good to be here. I, I, I don't like, um, Bible says don't neglect the coming together, the fellowship, fellowship in one to another. I, it's just power when you guys make a choice to come to church. And I just, I, I love that. And I, I wanted to reward you tonight for doing that by speaking tonight on the Father heart of God. That's what I feel. I just feel it's, I, I feel it's right. I felt it this afternoon. And I thought, man, um, and when I looked down tonight and, I, and the, way, the place that the worship went to, who you say I am. When you understand the Father's heart and who, you, who he says you are, it just puts you in such an amazing, good stead with everything you face in life. And that's, uh, and that's where I want to go. And so to, to, what, what better story to start with about the Father heart of God but the one of the prodigal son. All right, so I'm going to read it really quickly so that you've got it fresh in your head. Most of you already know it, right? But there will be a couple of details that you were like, oh, that's right, I forgot about that. So here we go. Not long after that, the youngest son of, of two got together all he had, which was all of his inheritance, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. As soon as you say squandered all he had, everything in us says you irresponsible little twerp, right? And already we are in judgment of that dude as though we haven't done that ourselves, all right? So, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. You put yourself in that place, then you run out of stuff, and then you hire yourself out to that place. You come from the place where you were dependent on your father, then you go away from the place where he is no longer there, and now you have to become dependent on the place that you ran to. So, <laughs> he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. Even the pods look good. It's amazing how, how food looks good the hungrier you get. That stuff you wouldn't touch before is now, is now looking pretty darn good. Uh, he said to himself, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. And this is the verse that we all love the most. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Kissed him. K-I-S-S-E-D. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Man, when we come to God, there's so much in that. When we come to God, I don't know how many of you have come to him with that same sorry speech. 
How many times have we come to God saying, Father, I've sinned and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm not worthy to be called your daughter. We go to him because we're filled with guilt. We're filled with shame. We've tried to fix that thing so many times, but we keep failing. And every time we fail, we get, we, there's that thing inside of us that says, you can't go to God again. Right? How many times? Oh, man, I can't go. I can't keep going to God. And so it forces us, it pushes us out of the presence of God. And yet we have, because we have this wrong idea that he's going to say, what do you have to say for yourself this time? But when we see the, re- the, the response of the father who had compassion on his son, ran to him, threw his arms around him and kissed him. This is not like a, all right, come on. You don't kiss your son like that, especially when they're covered in pig slop. Unless you are passionately in love with that that kid. Man, when when my kids come to me, I don't don't care if they're covered in crap and they're they're needing a hug, especially if they're hurt. Who cares what they've been rolling in if they're hurt? You're just like, come here. When my kids come to me, even if they've done wrong stuff, I'm not going to turn them away when they come back to me repentant. I'm not going to go, oh, I told you. Boom. (laughs) What the hell kind of parent is that? And that's what we expect God to do. Instead, we come back to him and that's what he does. My son is 20 years old, and I, we will, I'll still kiss that kid. I, I lean on his neck. You know, we're that affectionate. He, I lie on the couch, and he'll still come and lie on my back. We are that affectionate. Because when I grew up, I, I never got that from Dad. I don't know, there were probably a few around. Eh? You never got that from Dad, especially that generation. There was no, none of that affectionate type stuff. That was Mum's job. So you, maybe you got a hug and a kiss from Mum, but not from Dad. Dad was like... Harden up, son. <laughs> well, actually, I didn't even get that. He just wasn't there. So when, I, when, when the kids were growing up, I just thought, man, I'm going to make sure that they understand that right here is the safest place on earth. Right? Because that, I just never had that. And I remember grow, growing up, because I never had that idea of, of the father heart of God and how much, how affectionate he is towards me, I, I, I took that to my perception of God for sure. And therefore, I had all these problems. Therefore, everything that I went through or that happened to me, I went to God with a wrong perception, thinking either he doesn't love me or he caused it. You know what I'm saying? So if something bad happened to me, I'm thinking, well, you, you caused this to happen because you think I'm really bad. And you're sick and tired of me. Just me? Oh, okay, I take from your silence that it's not just me. Uh, how, many, how many times has something bad happened in the world and some Christian puts up their hand and says, see, God is punishing you? What kind of perception is that? What that suggests is God is really angry and he's a really nasty individual. Who does that? 
It even says, as us as earthly parents, if we know, and in comparison to God's goodness, the Bible calls us evil fathers, right? Even if you, as evil fathers, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more would the father? Compared to the goodness of God, we, father, son, father, daughter, Right? We're good fathers. We're good parents. We love our kids. How many parents here love their kids? 100%. (laughs) Right, but the... (laughs) Like, no, all of you, I'm sure you love your kids. And if I went around to your place, you would die for your kids, right? You'd do anything for your kids because they are your kids. And yet compared to the goodness of God, you are evil. That's how much he loves you. That's, that's pretty amazing, right? Okay, so <clears throat> when, we, when, we come to, when we come to God, we have this idea of I'm not worthy to be a son or a daughter. Make me a servant. When my dad died, um, I was, I was, we were in Tauranga and, and he was in Whanganui. So he, he passed away uh, 29 years ago. And so uh, I remember getting the phone call and then we were all sad. And I was, and I was, dad was strongly, fiercely Māori, right? Taranaki, I don't know who was here this morning, but he fiercely Taranaki. So, but when I became a Christian, I had come away from the Marae life, right? So now I didn't, I didn't know how to speak. I wasn't fluent with it. I, I understood it because I'd grown up on the marae, but I hadn't, you know, it wasn't part of my world at that stage. It was more Christian and church. Yep. And so I came back and we drove back overnight. And when when I drove up to our home, right, this is the the house that I'd grown up in. Uh, It was a long driveway. I came down the drive and I saw all these cars. And then I saw this weird sight. Our home, which I'd I'd played rugby in front of and and raced cars down and all kinds of stuff, was now turned into like a marae. And there was a, there was a, you know, the paipai was over here and, and, the, um, and all the visitors' seats were over here, and there were people on there, and there were, there were people standing, and they were all caught at all. The protocol was all happening. All that stuff was going on. Dad was inside. I saw the front doors open, and I saw the, the edge of a box. And so there was Dad inside. So here's me in this kind of shocked state. Oh, my gosh. You know, this is my dad, and he's, and he's died, and, and I can just see him in there, and I need to get in there. That's, that's my dad, and that's my home. But between me and home and my dad is all this protocol. That was like, just like religion. That was all his protocol. And I thought, well, how am I going to do this? Out of respect for him, I didn't want to cut across at all. I thought, no, 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 because I didn't know. So because it was my home, I thought, well, at least I can, you know, maybe I can just creep around the back door. So I did. I shot around the back and I shot in the back door and I came in. And then there was mum and I... You know, I was able to go see dad. Afterwards, my uncle came out, found me and say, yeah, hey, yeah, nephew. <laughs> and said, hey, I'm not sure if you understand this. I saw you come around the back. You need to understand in our, in our koa, in our protocol, when you are family, it doesn't matter what's going on out the front with all the formal stuff. Because you're direct family, you can cut straight across it and go straight through the front door. And I was like, I, didn't, I did not know that. 
when I come to God all those times and I come to him with the sorry speech, so many times I come and I say, I'm not worthy to be called your son and daughter. I'm, I'm not the worthy one. Maybe I can just slip around the back door and become like a servant. Maybe if I keep just coming to church and serving in church, that'll be enough to get me in the back door. Maybe if I just do more ministry, maybe if I just keep preaching and keep leading worship and keep doing stuff, that'll be enough to get me in your good graces so at least I can come around the back door. And he says, he says, hey, when Jesus died for me, he became the first of many ears, the first of many brothers, which means I am a brother to Christ, not a hired servant. I'm family. And because of family, I no longer need to obey the protocol. I no longer need to go through that sorry speech. No longer have to do all that. I can walk straight across that through the front door to my, my dad that's waiting. That's your right as, as family. You've got tūranga waiwai, a place to stand. You've got that place to stand because that's your right as a son and a daughter. It's, you haven't earned that by your works. You've earned that by being blood. Not the blood from your mum and dad, not the blood from, the, from Ngāruru, not the blood from Waikato, not the blood from, from any of that. You've earned it from Jesus' blood. And Jesus' blood is enough. And I just, there's so many students, there's so many kids and young people, especially that we work with, that just don't know who they are. So that when the enemy comes and when lies come, lies come and tell us stuff like, you're not worthy. Lies come and say, yeah, you've, it was your fault that your parents separated. Lies come and say, man, it was your fault that that person did that to you. And, I, and I'm going, hey, don't you understand who you are? You don't have to take that anymore. You don't have to receive that crap anymore. It's time for you to fight back. But you, know, you can fight back with kind of some verses here and some scripture here and maybe some, some but I'm doing this for God. And I'm in, but there's nothing like just standing strong, firm and standing up. For, you've got to get your stance right first. When you're fighting, you've got to get your stance right first. Anybody that knows, right? You've got to get your stance right first, baby. got to get your balance. And where does you, where does your, where's your firm standing come from? Standing on the fact that you are a son of God, that you are a daughter of God. That's your foundation. You better give him a clap, all right? That's... Your papa, your dad, your heavenly father is waiting for you. He's waiting for you to come back. Um, I, I'm not sure if, uh, if a lot of you know that that sense of when you sin, he's not angry at you. Okay, so I was, I was, I had that picture of God because when I was, Dad was always angry, right? And there was one time when, uh, when I was fourteen, I smoked for a week, <laughs> you know, and I, I learned how to do it at the at athletics, at, you know, because all everybody else was doing it, and um, athletics, hey, what a what a place to learn to smoke. So, um, so I had picked it up, and then and then I was at home on a Friday night, and mum and dad were going out. They were going to the marae for the weekend, actually, and so they got in the car and they took off, and then I started making some toast, right? Well, while I made some toast, I lit up, and I thought, okay, I've got the smoke. I put it on an ashtray over here, and then I, I was making some toast, 
And then, um, to my horror, mum walked in the back door, right? And, they'd, and she had forgotten something. And so I was like, ooh, you know, yo. And so I'm kind of thinking, oh, no, is she going to see this? The ashtray was over there. Mum walked in the back door. To my uh, delight, she walked past the smoke down the hallway. I thought, oh, phew, she was in a hurry. She didn't see it, so she walked down, right? So I quickly grabbed it and ran out the front door. And who should walk through the front door? <laughs> That's right. Oh, dad walks through the front door, right? And I'm standing there holding this lit cigarette. This lit cigarette, it's smoking. There's no one else in the house, right? And he, say, <laughs> and he says, whose is that? Right? There's no one else in the house that's lit cigarette. And I, I don't know why, but somehow my irrationality and my brain just seemed to just go like that. And I said, I don't know. I just found it here. <laughs> Idiot. Right? He even, he even gave me a second chance. He said, I wasn't born yesterday. Who's this, who smokes that? Right? And, in, and in the, I don't know what it is. There's a fear. <laughs> Just this fear that means you lose your ability to think straight, to think logically, and, and because of fear of punishment, like he, he, didn't, he didn't say he was going to hit me. He didn't say he was going to punish me. I just had that fear. I hadn't had a history of it. He had, I, the only thing I was afraid of with him was his voice. He was just grumpy voice all the time. What? <laughs> Dad, can I borrow the car? What's wrong with your bike? <laughs> That's what I remember. <laughs> What's wrong with your bike? <laughs> it was just a grumpy voice all the time. So he, I, it wasn't a history of, of, of smacking or anything like that. He wasn't you know, violent with, with us. He was just grumpy all the time. Voice was just angry all the time. So, but my fear was, no, angry, there's going to be punishment. So because I lied, I, and then he asked me again, I turned around to put it out and then pe- turned back around to face the wrath and my very fears were realized. Then I ended up on the floor. Gave up smoking, no problem. <laughs> I didn't need no patch. <laughs> Went to school with a black eye for a week. <laughs> easy, easy fix. He even said, it's not about the smoking, it's about the lying. Yeah, exactly, I'm not the only one that's, yep, all right. Because we've got that, but God is not like that. God does not punish you. You know why? Because all the punishment that he rightly has for everything you've done wrong, he's taken it and he's already put it on Jesus on the cross. So he doesn't have to punish you anymore as long as we accept what Christ has done. That's, some, that's pretty powerful stuff right there. All you have to do is accept what Christ has done and God is no longer angry. The problem is accepting what he's done. Right? And we don't accept it, not because it's fact, but because we feel like we should still be punished. Let's face it, the fact is, if you confess your sin, the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what the Bible says. So that's the fact, right? But when we come into worship, honestly, often, 
if we've sinned and we feel guilty, even though we've confessed it, something in us, our feelings tell us, no, we deserve to be punished. Let's face it. They're just feelings. They're not fact. It's just feelings. Which means it takes faith to battle the feelings. It takes faith to say, even though I feel like I should be punished, your word tells me I am whole and I'm clean and I'm righteous. Even though I feel like I've done this too many times that you must be angry with me by now, your word tells me that your, your love endures forever and your mercy endures forever and your grace is sufficient for me. Am I speaking to anybody? Man, I, I just, I am so conscious, especially amongst younger people, that our, our feelings are just the opposite of faith. We often say doubt is the opposite of faith. I, I, I reckon, I reckon it's feelings. Because it's the feelings that are always telling us the opposite stuff. Faith says, no, no, I, sh- I, sh- I can walk in, I can boldly walk into the presence of God. But our feelings say, no, no, run away from the presence. You know what was, you know what was awesome? When Adam and Eve sinned, they, as soon as they sinned, they, got, they became ashamed and they became afraid of God. Why should they become afraid of God when all he had done is showing them love? There was a lie going on right there. So when Adam and Eve sinned and they heard the sound of God coming, like me with my angry dad, they ran away to hide. What, what told them that they should be running away from God? Just a lie. This is why it was so amazing when David came on the scene. Because God, God was like, David was a thousand years before Jesus. So he had no idea. He had no idea what was in the heart of God, except for the fact that he was a worshiper. And because he had that worshiping intimacy with God, he did get a clue of what was in his heart which is why he was able to write. When he sinned, when he sinned with Bathsheba, he didn't run away. He ran into God saying, create in me a clean heart. How did he know how to do that? How did David know how to do that? He knew it because he knew what was in the heart of God, not because the word told him, because nobody had written it down ever, anywhere. He knew it because he had an intimacy with his father that he got from worshiping, with, worshiping him out in the field. It's amazing what your, your intimacy with God will do for your, your identity, for your self-worth, your knowledge of God. And you can get that when you, when you, when you worship him. Your worship is not just about you, you know, falling down and, and being uh, sorry for what you've done. That's part of it. Part of it is if there's always repentance. There's always remorse. There's regret. There's, there's, there's brokenness. There's all, of course, that's all part of it. There's part of the journey. But you're not supposed to camp there. God's ultimate goal is for you to have that intimacy with him so that then you know what's in the heart of God. And you will always find he's, he's never changed. He's always been after the one, the one thing, intimacy, oneness, family, belonging. He wants you to belong to his family. He wants you to belong to his family. Man, you know, in the, um, in the Old Testament, um, 
Never mind. In, in the Old Testament, he's, only, he's referred to father only 15 times uh, as, as a father. It's, and it's mainly the father of the nation of Israel, right? So we don't really get that idea of the father God until the New Testament. When the New Testament, we only get the idea of the father God because Jesus himself calls him father. It's, his, it's Jesus' favorite way of addressing God by calling him father. I think that's beautiful because we kind of assume when, when you look through the Old New Testament, we think in general the New Testament refers to God as Father. But actually most of the time it's Jesus referring to him as Father because he really was his Father. Actually, he's never changed. He's always been the Father. It's just that we've, we've, never, we've never really seen it in there. But there's a beautiful story that shows us in the Old Testament how God has always had that same sense of intimacy and wants that. When Abraham, when Abraham had his son Isaac, God did this amazingly, oh, this amazing thing. When he, he had been, he had been uh, trying to have this son for ages, for years and years and years. And then he finally got him. God finally gave him a son, and his name was Isaac. After all these years of waiting for him to have this son, Isaac, God then does this incredible thing and asks him to sacrifice him. Why would you do that? But he said it in a strange way. Um, he said it in this in, in Genesis 22. He said, son, Abraham, oh, actually, I'm just going to read it to you. He didn't just say, Abe, I want you to sacrifice your child to me. That's what all the other gods did. All the other guys just said, sacrifice your children. He said to, to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him as an offering on a mountain I will show you. That's kind of a weird thing to say, right? Take your son, your only son, whom you love. It's like, why rub that salt in the wound? Like, take your son, your only son. You are the one that you love. <laughs> hey, that's like cold, man. Why? Because this is a lesson for us. That one day, it's like an echoing into the future. One day, he would take his son, his only son, the one that he loved, and sacrifice him for us. The fact that when, when he went under the waters of baptism and he came out and he spoke from heaven and said, this is my son whom I love. I'm pleased with him. That's how he described his son. That's the, that's the depth of feeling that he had. So when he was asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, it's, like he, it's, it's not like he didn't know what he was asking of him. It was just as a sign to us, actually God's always felt that way about us. He's always wanted that intimacy with us. He's always wanted that closeness with us. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, because one day I will take my son, my only son, whom I love, and sacrifice him for you. Do you think a God that's willing to sacrifice his only son that he loves for you would treat you any different? When you sin... Do you think he went through that kind of pain so that when you sinned, you came into his presence, he could punish you again? 
that father heart that he has. It's so soft for you. There's this, um, there was this one time I came home and, um, and uh, the kids were already in bed. And in particular, it was Josh. When Josh was uh, eight years old, I think it was eight, he had this really fuzzy head. It was really cute. Like, and I just used to love snuggling into it. It's just really, oh, you know. <laughs> it was so cute, uh, so fuzzy. And, I, and we were really affectionate like, like that. And so, um, but I came home one day and they were already in bed. And so I didn't, I missed saying goodnight to them. And so I, I, I said to Libs, I yell, I'll go and say goodnight. And as I, I came into the room, I remember sliding the door back and the light came in from out in the hall. As I, uh, as I walked in, I could see my shadow against the wall, and it looked really big and foreboding. And I thought, man, for a little eight-year-old kid, just to see this big foreboding shadow come in, you know, come out of the door, it could be really scary, right? It could look really scary. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, we, we, we often see God like that because he's big and he's, but he can't help being who he is. And as much as I couldn't help, you know, being as big, well, I could help that way maybe, but not you know, sideways, but, you know, and I'm coming in, I'm this tall, I'm this wide. Um, so he, I can't help being that I, who I am, but he, all he could see was this black foreboding figure. But because he knew that was dead, there was no fear. Because he knew it was dead, instead of going, <gasps> he went... And I was like, hey, baby boy. <laughs> Thank you, sweetheart. Oh. You understand that that's how God feels about you. Whether you've done stuff wrong or not. He always feels that for you. There were, I, I, went to a, I went to a pastor later on. And, and um, this, 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 that picture of God affected me for years and years and years. Well into my 30s. And I remember going to this older pastor. He was a fatherly type pastor. And I was, and I was talking to him about the stuff that I'd been going through. And, and most of the time, it was about me not being good enough. I keep on doing the same stuff over and over again. And I know, I'm sure God must be getting sick of me by now. It's that type of language. Anybody? You know, it's that, I'm sure. In fact, we put words into God's mouth that are ridiculous sometimes, right? We go to God and we say, God, I've done this. I've failed you yet again. I keep trying to fix this, but I keep failing. Man, you must hate me by now. As if, (laughs) as if God could hate you. And yet we will say that to him and believe it. Why? Because of feelings. Just our feelings. It's not fact, it's just feeling. And so I was telling this pastor this stuff again and saying, hey, what am I going to do and how can I fix this? And oh, I really need to spend more time in the Word and I need to spend more time. And because I need to, in my mind, in my heart, I was telling myself I need to do. I need to work my way back into God's graces. I need to spend more time studying and spend more time praying and spend more time worshiping. And that's what's going to get me back into the good graces of God. And he stopped me in my tracks and said, you know, Wayne, 90% of your problems would go away if you just knew what God thought of you. They'd just go away if you just knew what God thought of you. That's awesome, eh? And it wasn't until I had my own kids that, I, that that suddenly made sense. 
when I, when I think about the kids and just what they, when they come to me, there's nothing that I wouldn't do for them. There's nothing I wouldn't do for them. I don't care what they did wrong. There's no, I would never hold them at arm's length. I would never withhold my love from them. I would never not want to give them everything they want. Even to, even to the, when I was, a, I mean, I'm an, I'm an imperfect dad. When they're growing up, if they asked for stuff, I wanted to give them everything. Even the, even the stuff they shouldn't have. They're asking for McDonald's every meal. I wanted to give them McDonald's every meal. Mainly because I probably wanted McDonald's every meal. <laughs> Am I right, dads? Right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> When my dads call me daddy or papa, it, it gets my heart. Um, I'm now known at school as Papa Hui. Mama lives Papa Hui. But only the special ones get to call me daddy. There's only two kids in the world that get to call me that. There's a special need in everybody's life for a papa's hug. To rest in the arms of your dad. Man, I miss that so much with my dad, and I desperately wanted it, needed it as a kid. Because I didn't get it, I looked for it in other places. There's a whole generation out there looking for that papa's hug and other things. And it's time for you to come home. Time for you to come home. Come home to this place where you, are, where you belong. That's right in the arms of your loving dad. This, this father of God, you know, even, even the, the description of God as a father is under attack today. Ariana Grande, God is a woman. It's under attack. She's not the first one. There's been plenty of people saying, no, God is not a male. I'm like, no, we've got the wrong idea. Just because we, we're getting father, we're not, we're not saying male has any gender. We know God has no gender. God is father and mother. God has maternal instincts as much as he has paternal instincts. He has all those. Why? We know that because we are made in his image. Where do you think we got those from? Where do you think all the mothers got the maternal? There are plenty of scriptures that uh, talk about, uh, listen to this, Luke 13, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And Isaiah 49, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? That's God speaking. How does he know that if he's a male? (laughs) We make the mistake of thinking God uses earthly marriage or even the earthly father relationship as an analogy for his relationship with us. But actually, it's the other way around. We understand our relationship with our dads because of his relationship with us. It's the way it's supposed to be. It's why Satan is trying so hard to destroy families, to destroy fathers. If we can take that father heart away from our understanding, he can destroy us as people. Why? Because we learn so much stuff from our father, and the first thing is identity. You learn who you are from your dad. This is what God says. As a father, I want to see you grow, so I teach you, I train you. Right? As a father, I want to see you grow, so I teach you and I train you. I discipline you. I guide you. I push you out of comfort zones. I never put you in danger, even though it may seem scary. I won't give you anything that's bad for you, but I will also allow you to make your own decisions. 
And sometimes I have to allow you to suffer the consequences of your decisions, even if it breaks my heart. Don't we as parents know how to do that? Don't we as parents know how to do that? We allow our kids to go through stuff, even if it breaks our heart. But I will always make a way for you to come back home. I will always make a way for you to come back home. The prodigal son shows the heart of God waiting for the broken to come back home. His heart is to give you a royal robe. His heart is to give you a royal ring. His heart is to give you a huge party. His heart is actually to give you more inheritance than the inheritance you already lost. That's incredible. If you know that he is a good, good father. Look at this psalm, right? Let's finish on this. Psalm 136 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. When you, now, when you look through the whole psalm, there's, one, there's a line, and then there's the other line, his love endures forever. Just start scrolling through them, if you, if you wouldn't mind. Look at this. Give thanks to the God of gods, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, his love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. When we understand that his love endures forever, then you know that no matter what happens in your life, you come from that basic understanding, that foundation. Well, his love endures forever. Therefore, he can't be doing this to me. Therefore, it's not his fault that bad stuff is happening to me. Because why? His love endures forever. He's a good God. I can, I can weather this thing that I'm going through. Why? Because His love endures forever. He's a good God. He wants good things for me. I'm not gonna, this is not going to last for all eternity. Even if this world from now until the day I die is really horrible, I have an eternal destiny in Him of goodness, of paradise, of love, of intimacy with His Father in heaven. Why? Because His love endures forever. If you know that his love endures forever, you can stand on that fact you have a good father and you can face anything in this life, anything in this world. Can you close your eyes? Let's let's receive from a good, good father. I know there are plenty of you now who are just, who, as I've been speaking, you're feeling like, man, I've never known that type of father. Or maybe you've just thought, God, you've never understood that father heart of God for you. And now I just want to take you just a couple of seconds just for you to imagine, use your imagination to see yourself coming before God and his arms open wide. All he wants to do is hug you. All he wants to do is hold you. Some of you are so weary because you've been fighting your own stuff and yet his grace and mercy has been waiting for you all this time if you would just come to him. Just take a minute to present yourself to him. Take the risk to give yourself to his arms. Let him wrap you up in his arms so that you can rest your soul. You can rest your weary soul finally. You don't have to work so hard. Just rest in his arms. Let him fill you with his Holy Spirit to empower you from here to walk on.
You don't have to do it in your own strength. He loves you. 